Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cloak and Dagger podcast, the Cities edition. Uh, you're listening to your host, Will Davis Coleman, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Courtney. The Cities edition, I like that. Yeah, have we, I, I don't know. We, can we just... can we change our name? Like we did, like season three cities, but the cities edition sounds really yeah. cool. I don't know why it just came. I was ad libbing. Thought it would work. Although, does it sound? <laughs> it sounds a bit like like a Sims expansion, the cities edition. They <laughs> <laughs> <Do you> think <laughs> it was a very good expansion that one. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or maybe like yeah, a civilization yeah. expansion, <laughs> which is a bit, a bit more fitting with what we're doing. But still, Possibly. I like it. It sounds it sounds premiere and sounds good. which is what we are. Glad you, glad you, yeah right yeah <laughs> yeah of course we are creme de la creme right here yeah, um exactly. but yeah thank you so much for tuning back into another episode uh if you haven't already please uh, go on to instagram and follow us at cloak and dagger podcast where you'll find a post that we put up every week that we're, we're putting out our our recordings and it'll give you accompanying pictures that we can't actually show you because this is of course an audio only show at the moment unfortunately um, so yeah. <laughs> but who knows maybe in the future we'll get into a youtube channel but that's uh, still a fair a fair a horizon t- a tv it. special a netflix special you know sky's <laughs> the limit yeah <laughs> not i'm a feeling to movie off the back of the last episode i'm very positive you know after seeing baghdad at its zenith at its heights i'm like i'm unstoppable nothing can stop me Okay, I'm about to crush your dreams then. Because oh, well, this here, is, here we go then. <laughs> this is the thing. It's so hard to do um, when, we're, when we've been focusing on cities. Uh, it's quite hard to do both two good times. It tends to be the rise and then the fall. And, we have uh, done I, two bad times. Or like, sorry, a, like a good and a bad time each. I think we have actually, yeah. Yeah, kind I of. So. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So uh, this is the second episode that we're doing on Baghdad. And it is uh, my turn to talk about the city after last week uh you probably remember uh all the best things about baghdad in its golden age which lasted a really long time as well for a golden mm. age and yeah. how it became yeah. this hub of intellect and kind of liberalism um in a in a caliphate it's something that that maybe uh listeners aren't used to hearing those words put together what with the most current eco- uh, yeah. sorry, political situation but yeah. actually yeah in a lot of ways, Islam was much more liberal and was, for most of its history, than Christianity um, yeah. and Judaism. So quite interesting, I think. It's a good setup for what <laughs> you're going to hear today. So hopefully you've listened to that episode. If you haven't, please go back and have a look. Um, and yeah, let's get into this. To start us off then uh, for this week, we are I'm just going to give you a little bit of background just in case you either missed last week's episode, and if so, get over to that one, or just to <laughs> just give you a little bit of a, a, a reminder from last week. So Baghdad is built on the Tigris River, and it was founded in a graveyard of legendary cities in, in yeah. a very close place. Um, so you had uh, the old Parthian capital of Tessaphon, which is located just 30 kilometers or 19 miles, if you prefer, to the southeast of mm-hmm. um, of it. And that was a very powerful place, which uh, if you've heard of Parthia, you've probably heard it in relation to the Roman Empire. Basically, the Parthians stopped the Roman Empire going any further east than Judea. Judea. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. It's also where uh, I think they killed, they're responsible for several or multiple emperors being killed in the field and Jeez. yeah it was a, it was a hell of a place the parthian empire um so tessaphon no longer really 
it was inhabited. And when once Baghdad was set up, everyone who was living in Tessafon just moved to Baghdad because ah, they were like, well, this is this is the place to be right now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But to go even older than the Parthian Empire, uh, the site of Babylon, as in from the Bible and everything else you know about Babylon, uh, th- that had been deserted since the second century. That lies some 56 miles to the south. So you've mm. got these two massive places in, in sort of global history, which no longer inhabited, are sitting on the back doorstep of this incredible city in its own right, Baghdad right on the river Tigris. It is the perfect place for spectacular cities, clearly. Everyone had the same idea. Yeah, it really does. And as um, Patrick mentioned, and as with most of our cities that we've spoken about before, Baghdad itself actually began from a very humble beginnings as a small village, which, as as, uh, was mentioned last week, was also known as Baghdad. Mm -hmm. It turns out that Baghdad actually means God-gifted, even though the original inhabitants were probably Aramaic-speaking Nabataeans, who didn't even... I don't think Nabataeans, they had their own gods. They had a pantheon of gods rather than... uh, They weren't from the Islamic world. So, yeah. Um, Very weird. The the other thing I didn't realise is that um, the new city was mainly Arabic-speaking. So it wasn't sort of... I don't know... When you think of Saudi Arabia or the Arab Peninsula, that's much further south than here. Yeah. Than, than Baghdad. But actually, it began life as an Arabic city, which is kind of cool. Who yeah. knows? Hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, the the shape of the city is also obviously integral to this story in terms of getting it going in your mind's eye of what it looked like. As Patrick said yeah, uh, last week, it was uh, a perfect circle. It's known as yeah. the, uh, what was it called? The cir- the, the round city. The round city. That's as, it, a, round as a city. nod to Euclid, because they're all obsessed with mathematics and science and stuff like that. Which is a weird yeah. way to base a city, but you know. But what's who am I? amazing, I'm not Caliph. Yeah, <laughs> it w- it had an area, an internal area of three kilometers squared. So still, uh, so fairly massive. He clearly had um, big plans. Al Mansur, who was the founding uh, founding father of the city. Um, but what I found, I think you'll really find it's. I think I think it's find it's a uh, it's pi r squared. It's a circle. Uh, uh, yes, very funny. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I should have been quicker with that joke, but I was trying to make sure I got it right. <laughs> you did you almost say pi times diameter? And thinking you uh, I was, I was, yeah, I was, I was going ahead, going okay. I've got to get this joke right. These moving on. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, Al Mansur. Um, what I find fascinating was Al Mansur was a Muslim, but to plan this city, which he had great um, hopes for, great designs for, for the Caliphate, he actually didn't have. The, the two people who he got to design that were one was a former Zoroastrian, who um, that's the uh, religion that many of the uh, Abrahamic religions is based on, mm. and it's a very old, probably the oldest religion in the world. And the other person was a Persian Jewish astrologer, sorry, Patrick, and an astronomer. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so yeah. it was a Persian Jew and a Zoroastrian. Who, uh, wow. who made the city. And as we heard last week, it was Nestorian Christian monks who told them where to build it. So it's a, it's a real foundation in a multi-faith capacity, which I thought yeah. was really cool. All yeah. these different like learned people seeing across the stars or the plains and going, this will be the greatest city and choosing that. Wow. I mean, it, was, it had to be destined for greatness with all this, all this like, you know, big, big, like, uh, big names. Uh, starting at the beginning, you know. Yeah, and I think this cross-section, though, of all the different religions that were around at the time 
really it, it sort of established it as this place where all these it acted like a magnet for all these different cultures to sort of hone into one place and become this hub of translations as we heard last week uh in the episode by patrick so yeah i think it's a really interesting place to start um but unlike the uh the w- when was yours 8 30 ce 8 13 to 8 30 ish is where we were kind of looking at but yeah yeah, yeah. so early to mid 9th century okay so we're going to be speeding forwards from there through the best years of the city, through that yeah. lovely golden age, and we're going to arrive in 1258 CE. Wow. So, yeah, yeah so, so we... about 400 years? Yeah. Yeah, just about, yeah. And, or just over. Um, and it, as, as, as uh, Patrick mentioned last week, the city had actually been in decline for some time by this point. Mm. So it, uh, for the last sort of 70, 80 years especially, it had turned, it, there was nothing necessarily going wrong but it was just things were getting a bit loose around the edges. So, yeah, so, so this is a city which is um, still the foundation that, of the Abbasid Empire. And as we heard last week, Al-Mansur was the, uh, the founder, and he was also the founder, I'm pretty sure, of the whole dynasty. And this dynasty had carried on from that time period all the way through to the, the caliph of today in 1258. And the, the name of that caliph is a man named uh, Caliph al-Mustasim. And he ruled the city um, pretty much as a dictator. But he also, like with many of these uh, Middle Eastern and sort of, I guess, no, Middle Eastern uh, power structures, there was also a vizier who was very, very important. And a vizier yes. is sort of like the prime minister slash right-hand man slash advisor to um, the caliph. And his name was al-Alkami. And uh, quite often you find that th- there's uh, spheres of influence and power come up between the two. So if you have a weak caliph, you'll have quite a strong vizier. And if you have mm. a weak vizier, you'd have a strong caliph. You know, it, they have to share power. And that's always very tricky, I think. Um, yeah, they can't even be though... evenly matched. One will always be more dominant over the other, just yeah. depending on the strength, normally the strength of the other one. It's interesting. I've always kind of thought viziers as very much... Uh, advisors like they are nowhere they don't hold their own power they're kind of like you kind of get that idea of the secretive man whispering in the in the ear of the king (laughs) yeah it's not like that it's more like a prime minister it is uh, an important figure in their own right with a substantial amount of power absolutely but the main difference between the two is that the caliph has been anointed by muhammad or by god by allah so that's the difference so like from the outsider's perspective like just a normal person the caliph is much higher but in reality it's not like that at the top, but no well, one really it, sees it, the top. So it's, it's like to the it's like the king and the um, the prime minister, or actually possibly even better, the uh, Japanese emperor and the shogun, because quite commonly the shogun yes. is more important and more in control. And but the emperor is this god that is yeah. technically above everyone, but actually doesn't wield that much power. Mm, absolutely. Um, so uh, why have I chosen the year twelve fifty eight? Well. Uh, we'll go into the detail further into the podcast, but the that year was the death knell of the city's height of power. Now, although it had been slight decline, it was still a force to be reckoned with. The caliph yeah. and the whole Abbas family are still living in Baghdad. It's still the capital. It still holds the House of Wisdom and uh, several other libraries in other parts of the city to make it a real cultural hub still. There's still all of that going on. Still a powerhouse, um, yeah. 
It's still very liberal. There's lots of Jews and Christians, Nestorian Christians living in the city. It's not just um, Islam. Uh, so that that uh, reputation has survived throughout this entire period in between the two episodes, which God, is really a, saying something. That's an amazing length of time for such a kind of modern, forward-thinking, almost like we said earlier, liberal kind of city to yeah. have this idea of like freedom. It's like a freedom of thought, which is something that deeply religious states tend to lack. And it's it's amazing that it could last for so long. It really <laughs> is. It really the way is. you're speaking makes it sound like it's not going to last for much longer. But well, unfortunately, uh, the horses of the Mongol Empire ah. are coming to crush it. And the problem is that I'm not sure if anyone uh, remembers uh, or is cared enough to go on YouTube back in sort of the mid mid uh, noughties. But there was something called Crash Course World History, which was a, an incredible. It's, uh, it's still channel. going. I know it is still going. Not world history, history, but I think they do like European history and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, no, it's, no, it's they've John... moved. They've moved into like um, geology and yeah, they they do they, yeah they do everything now. But it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's John Green and Hank Green, the the vlog That's brothers it, who John do it. Green. Yeah. Well, John Green always says when he was talking through these various uh, various times is you can never like you can trust everything to go as normal unless the mongols are involved yeah. and the mongols just just trounce everyone they it's upset like a meme. every standard <laughs> yeah like, everything is different when it comes to them like there's no nothing like something is impossible and then the mongols do it because they're exactly. just this they're like they're like a for, they're like a force of nature they're like a fire they really are more than any other uh, empire that i can think of as well and the mongol empire at its height reached as far west as poland and they had um, dip- diplomats in Paris and Rome. Mm. So that's how far along they yeah. came, starting in Mongolia and going. They invaded Japan and Poland. Yeah. Like that's. that's and everything like, in between. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've got to be, what, the British Empire to, to invade places that far away. And that's when we had boats and like yeah. massive ships and navigation and stuff. They did it on just horseback. And this is the thing. Um, I think they they hold the record for the largest uh, empire unbroken by yeah sea. continuous empire yeah. yeah yeah. So they beat they knocked the Alexandrian Empire out of the water in in this thing. But anyway, they are on their way. They're encroaching further and further west, and they've come to the gates of Baghdad, and that's where I'm going to start my walkthrough. Oh, because that's a that's a that's an awful place to start a walkthrough. It's going to be a run screaming through, isn't it? Well, this <laughs> the is Mongols the thing. have just so reached there. They they've arrived at the city, and I'll go into the lead up to the, all of that, and I'll I'll break it all down. But at, at the beginning of the walkthrough, the walls are crumbling, and the Mongols <sighs> are at the gates. Oh, that's God. where we're going to start. Jesus so Christ! I mean, this really is a downer compared to my one, which was this lovely tale about thought and science and you know astrology well, I, I and had astronomy to, I had and, to, and, yeah. <laughs> to keep up our street street cred i had to sort of bring it back round to sort yeah, of to rest, back and ruin <laughs> mine really didn't have any death or murder in it and that is our that's our bread and butter so i guess yeah you had to bring <laughs> exactly. it back down again <laughs> Now, listen, the person who will be taking us on our walk through Baghdad um, in 1258 was not Mongolian, nor is he from the city, or even, oh. in fact, from modern-day Iran. In fact, he was born nearer to Kabul in Afghanistan than Baghdad. So wow. he is 
he has uh, traveled over a thousand miles, I'm mm. pretty sure, to get to Baghdad. Um, and his name is Nazir al-Din al-Tusi, or just Tusi for short. And that's not me shortening it. He is known to history as Tusi. Um, for short. <laughs> well, after last week, your your admirable I mean, you know, attempts. I didn't want to shorten names. any of my guys' name. I could have shortened all of their names. But Tusi is just such a lovely little word. I love it. And I can say it, so I'm going for it. <laughs> not as good as al Kahismith, but whatever. No, no. All right. These, these men died <laughs> hundreds of years ago. Patrick. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> and hundreds of years apart as well. Like, it's not like yeah. they're contemporaries at all. So. <laughs> well, he is uh, dressed in flowing robes, which are tightly belted at his waist. And he's wearing a simple turban and has a fairly long beard, which is graying. But he's not that old. He's sort of like in his 50s, something like that. Okay. Um, the only thing of note about his appearance, which might appear strange is a three-sided symbol tattooed on his right forearm. Three-sided symbol? Yeah, I'll come back to that later. Okay. He is flanked by a team of apprentices and other scholars, and they are in a hurry. So yeah. this is starting at the very edge of the, the city. So they're not in the city yet. They've got to get into it now. Oh, they're outside the city? Yes, Jeez. So the, the walk slash run begins at the very walls of the old city. And the Mongol catapults and siege engines have left a hole the size of a football pitch wide in the 44 meter thick walls. 44 Jesus. meter. Yeah, thick. I know. They're intense the walls. Fuck? And How the Mongols long? bash through them. Jesus. Yeah. I know. I just couldn't believe that they were that thick. Anyway, um, as Tusi and his team are scrambling up the rubble to the opening of the walls, they can hear the sound of a city falling to an unremorseful enemy army. And if Ooh. anyone knows how to give no quarter, it's the Mongols. They mm. were utterly barbaric in their in their punishments for cities that wouldn't just open their gates at the first at the first sign of an attack. But anyway, mm. um, this would have really disgusted Tusi, uh, as you will find out why in a minute. Um, the viewer waiting to see as he reached the opening in the walls must have been something as close to hell as he could possibly imagine. Wow, yeah. The, the largest city in the world was on fire. Its mm. inhabitants are running, dying, and hiding. Um, the Muslim majority were joined by Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians, Buddhists, and polytheists as well. So as we said earlier, it's a real city of, of just a complete sort of melting pot of, of, of different cultures. Would they and have like seen this coming to a certain extent? We, I know you'll get into like the 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 build up to this as well, but you say this is like a hell. But I imagine they wouldn't be necessarily overly surprised. They would know about the Mongols. They would know about the destructive force of this people. But... They would, but they, I think there was probably a sense that nothing could penetrate the, these walls that had stood for so long and uh, in the yeah. largest city in the world. You know, you'd, you'd feel a certain sense of belief because also the caliph isn't running caliphs there you know yeah so if yeah you, you think in... yeah yeah you've got a confidence in your city and then the what was it 44 meter thick, thick walls come crumbling down i think anyone's confidence would vanish after that yeah exactly um so in the distance tusi sees the great palace of the ruling abbasid dynasty and there is still fighting going on there and in the streets uh off to the east he sees his destination which is the house of wisdom which is the greatest library slash university which we heard about last week um which is, is in the royal palace area in the compound yeah yeah, um, yeah. 
Not a place I would head to if my city was under siege. I mean, unless he's looking to find some books about how to fight. Well, <laughs> remember, he started this journey at the outside of the city. So he ah, see. is with the invaders. Oh, yeah. well, that's a twist. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Um, Whoa, so okay. Jostling past sort of Mongol soldiers busy ravaging the city, Tusi and his team rush down to the riverside of the Tigris on the eastern edge of the city centre and are passing scorched mosques and churches and cowering citizens. But they might have noticed as they're running past that there are certain uh, uh, doors and buildings which are completely untouched, which have the Christian cross above the door. Ooh. So, yeah, so that's quite interesting. They're avoiding Christian homes. Interesting. Yes, they are. And so uh, they're rushing on, though. So all these scholars and apprentices and Tusi himself in the centre are still scurrying uh, their way to this huge library. And as they near this massive library, Tusi looks on in horror as he sees soldiers tearing at the piles and piles of priceless manuscripts and mm. books taken out from the library. And it's incredible what they did. Soldiers are tearing off the leather bindings of the books to use for their shoes, whilst others are literally throwing as many books into the Tigris as possible. And from one eyewitness account, so much so that the river had been stained an inky black from the oh. amount of ink that was just, and knowledge that was just being thrown they into were the just river. Throwing it all into the river for yeah. a reason, or just because they are. Destruction. Just, just destruction. to just. Oh, man. Yeah. All that, so all that knowledge, see... all those transcribed documents and all that work that had gone in during my episode, and then you just come in with your Mongol <laughs> horde and destroy them. I'm not a Mongol, Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> I'm many things, but I'm not a Mongol. Um, Tusi, thankfully, sees a Mongol commander who he knows well advancing towards him with a full regiment of disciplined soldiers. So most mm. of the city is, you've got, after a siege, um, soldiers traditionally and this happens historically all the way through history um get drunk and they rape and they pillage and they just let off the hook and really the commanders can't control their men even if they mm. want to but this regiment is not doing that they are they have abstained from any of this and they're mm -hmm. fully armored and and they haven't stopped their discipline and wow. he orders so he, he sees this mongol commander and who sees him back and he orders him to secure the great library and stop the destruction of the books by the order of Hulagu Khan himself, who was the Khan in charge of this wow. invasion. So the, the Khan gives the order to protect the library, which is well, an odd through Tusi, statement. Through Tusi, yeah. yeah. So the commander issues the orders without a moment's hesitation, and Tusi and his team of intellectuals, scribes, and scholars hurriedly follow their protectors and begin the mammoth task of saving one of the largest libraries on earth. Wow. That's amazing. So they get sent in there to protect academic research. That must be fairly unique in the history of the world. In the in warfare, you, I mean, I guess they're they're not. It's not really devoting resources because they're not soldiers. But no. to, you know, you're attacking a place and you send people in to protect elements of it is yeah. from your amazing. own soldiers as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially it's weird that it's from your own soldier because I know there's that story. I think I saw it on QI or something where um, during a war, I don't know history well enough, but the British are there 
Or, I know uh, what you're going to say. Is it in in Athens and the Parthenon, and then the people who hold it are melting down parts of it to make bullets, and oh, so no, I don't know that. This is a, I'm I'm annoyingly going to butcher this story, so please look it up. Either watch QI or find out about it somewhere else. But there was a war going on in Athens. I think it's with the Ottomans mm. um, when they ruled it, and it might be like a revolutionary kind of civil war for the Greeks trying to throw them off. And the position of like at the Parthenon was being held by the Ottomans, and they were running out of bullets, so they were starting to melt down a lot of the intricate design work onto the Parthenon to make bullets. So oh supposedly God. the British uh, and the rebels were giving bullets to the other side so as to protect uh, oh, really? this historical monument, which is a very weird uh, idea. Apologies if I've completely butchered that, but I'm barely sure I've taken that from QI, who's a pretty reputable awesome. source. But it's that kind that. of idea of in war you still think about history and about research and about art and about these cultural touchstones which in yeah. most wars are completely ignored uh, if not targeted uh, as as weak points the only other thing at the time i can imagine that, that i know of that this has happened is in world war Two. um the u.s actually the whole allied uh, forces set up something called the monuments men that's their colloquial term uh, and they yeah, went yeah. in to try and restore as much of the stolen nazi gold and also um i mean sorry the nazis stole it from jewish and just anyone and mm. lots of works of art including i'm pretty sure the mona lisa um so yeah, that yeah, yeah. As they, well. they, they're, they're sent out but that's that's also more modern and yeah you yeah. know it, it feels like whereas this is hundreds of years ago and they were sending it and it's the mongols well, which you imagine to is, be this barbarous nation it's not the mongols it's it's tusi and tusi's a local remember right. well not a local but he's not mongolian he mm. is he's there to save this incredible place that's the yeah. thing so he really stands out in the history books um so yeah that's the walkthrough i'm now going to take us back to the beginning of this story and we'll uh, have a look at it from there grand looking forward to it so i'm going to start by telling you about how did baghdad get to this point and then i'll tell you more about tusi okay so baghdad was ruled by the caliph the Abbasid Empire. It was still the center of the Abbasid Empire at this point. It did have a little bit of a hiatus when uh, the capital was moved to Samarra, which we heard about last week from Patrick. But yeah. it did return to this city and remained there up until this point. So it was still a city of incredible um, strength and power, um, especially because of the caliph, who was al-Mustasim. But what was going wrong for whatever reason, there are several accounts of how the city was reportedly suffering from internal strife, with uh, one writer was reporting high food prices, a weak currency, religiously mm. motivated riots, rebellions of unpaid soldiers, and a huge crime wave, all happening in the Bloody lead hell. up That's to pretty rough list. the Mongols. Yeah, and I looked into this, and it looks like this was intentional. Do you remember I told you that the city was run by both the caliph and the vizier, Al-Aqqar? Oh, of course, yeah. Now, it's very hard to know this far in, in, in time whether this is true, but it looks like Al-Aqqar was either... He already wanted to sow corruption into the caliph's reputation, mm. but he also appears to have been talking to the Mongols in wow. the lead-up. So he was wow, what a traitor! Yeah, especially with the unpaid soldiers, he he basically the funds which were meant to go there, the funds were there, but he they 
disappeared in air quotes and wow. it wasn't to enrich himself it was to make the caliph look bad and not rely on his soldiers to mm. um to to fight for him so al-mustasim clearly wasn't that strong and it looked like he was led by his advisors a lot so it was a it was a massive dilemma because uh, you you want to listen to the vizier who has lots of power. You have to adhere to him as well, even as the caliph. But you mm. also need to have your own strength of mind to know when to make the right calls. And yeah. this just feels like a, a, a sort of a list of errors and bad decisions that led to this Mongolian strife. Because, as you said, um, when we were doing the walkthrough, surely they would have seen them coming. These, yeah. This Mongol horde, because to the east of um, the Abbasid Empire was a place called the Khwarezmian Empire, and they had been crushed by the Khans already. So you know their neighbours had just been smashed. It's not surprising that they're next on the chopping block. Yeah. So yeah. as the as the representatives of Hulagu Khan, who was he wasn't actually the great Khan, that was his brother Monker, but he would eventually, when Monker dies, he becomes the great khan so, so soon to be of, great khan yeah they they call them the ill khan the ones who are sort of underneath the great khan uh, yeah, yeah, yeah so but hulagu was like the second most powerful man on the planet basically right. at this time um especially from a mongolian perspective so as he's coming towards the city it looks like he didn't want to crush it and i'm not just saying that from the mongolian side of uh, of the story it's also from the sunni side who were writing the other side of the story yeah um he sent out representatives basically saying I need you to submit to me, <laughs> which obviously sounds <laughs> yeah. like uh, no thank you. But when you've yeah. seen someone as powerful as your neighbours, the Khwarezmians, get yeah. crushed, you kind of see the writing on the wall just capitulate. And yeah. you can always, like, they might not last. You know, these are foreigners in a foreign land. They're not going to last that long. Yeah. So, but the thing is that the, um, the, the vizier tells uh, Al-Mustasim to stay strong and to not show, don't give them like proper gifts. But then his nobility went, no, don't be stupid. Send them gifts because that's what we should do. So he does a, the worst thing possible. He sends poultry gifts oh, to the Khan. Wow, you know, that is the worst of two. That's the worst compromise. So yeah, so you, don't, you're, you don't look proud and like strong because you didn't send gifts, but you also piss them off. Probably worse. I think receiving yeah. a bad gift is worse than receiving no gift. I mean, I'm known Mongol Khan, but if I was one, I think I'd be more insulted. It's an insult. It's like sending a message, really, of well, saying I... you're so weak, I can just send you some useless gifts and you'll uh, be happy with that and run away. Well, this is the thing, and it was taken by Hulagu as an insult by the shit gifts. So uh, what he then does... Hulagu is he sends another messenger and demands the caliph's heir as a hostage to ensure <laughs> his good behavior, who was his son. And wow. the caliph then is like, he wasn't going to accept the gift thing. He's now, he, he's had to double down. So he says the, cal the caliph declines. He, do he doesn't send <laughs> just like a paltry son, like a rubbish son, like another no, son does. that he doesn't he really does. care. He oh, really? He said, well, he doesn't send a son. He sends a lesser noble in his place. Ah, and this does. is even worse because the Khan is now really pissed. That's really like, funny. He just keeps sending worse versions of what he's being asked to. Yeah. Well, it's quite interesting because the Abbasid Empire is known for being a bit funny with gifts because over uh, on the other side of the world, uh, in, in, in Europe, mm. Charlemagne uh, was the king, who's sort of the emperor of the Carolingian Empire. Yeah. It was kind of the empire that came after the Romans. 
and he received from the caliph of baghdad so this guy's ancestor um an elephant and of course in charlemagne had never seen an elephant and was like yeah. oh my god this is awesome he must think i'm so cool turns mm. out that the caliph it was a symbol of subjugation he'd send he'd send elephants to his lesser subjects to show wow. how like oh i'm so great like here you are. I don't even need this elephant. You can just have it. But of course, Showing Charlemagne off, went, yeah. oh my God, look what I got. I got yeah, 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 yeah. What a great <laughs> gift. Oh my God, so, I love it. The gifts are a very much part of the politics for the Baghdad Caliphate. Right, yeah. Abbasid Caliphate. Um, so anyway, uh, he's really fucked this one up though. So when uh, the, um, at, at this point, Hulagu is now angry. So an angry Khan is not a good Khan to have. So no. he he literally says, right, we're going to take the city. I, I can't stand this. Because, of course, um, when these messengers are arriving at Hulagu's court, they're being seen by everyone. So it would make oh. Hulagu look like a laughingstock. Yeah, he's, he that's, that's, that's the real cutting element of it. Because, yeah, it's not the, the gifts themselves are almost irrelevant. It's how the gifts are looked on by other people. Yeah, and it's a, it's it, it makes him look weak if he accepts them. It's almost exactly. it's so challenging him to a fight. I know, but it's not a fight that they can win, which I'll explain why in a minute. Um, in fact, no, I'll explain right now. Um, <laughs> that in, in the lead up to this, um, we just need to slightly go slightly further back in terms of uh, in Islam, there are two uh, sort of policies that the caliph has the power to make, which no one else can make. Right. Um, in his in his sort of direct domain, and those are the Hajj to Mecca, which is the pilgrimage that everyone every um, Muslim has to make at some point in their life. Right. Um. Uh, but back then, it used to be made a lot more than once. You could go. You basically went for as much, many times and as he you could can in your life. Command when it happens or something. Or yeah, because he's the caliph, so he's the head of, as you said in the last episode. Of Islam, he is the yeah. head. There are no other caliphs at this point; just the one mm. in Baghdad. Um, and when you think that um, the Islamic world is stretching, as you say, all the way past Cairo and beyond mm. to the west and to Syria and everywhere in between, he has incredible power here for that. But his uh, call to Hajj uh, isn't just—it's mainly for his people under him in the Abbasid Empire. But he hopes that the others would also come. And what's yeah. interesting about that is he doesn't call the Hajj because he knows that the Mongols are on his doorstep. So his other tactic, his other policies allowed to make is jihad. And jihad is a call to defend the faith against invaders. Ah, uh, okay. But he waited painfully long to call the jihad against the Mongol. So it was too late for the far-flung parts of his empire for people to heed the call to come to to defend the holy city of Baghdad. So wow. he kind of fucks it up both ways. And the problem was because he shunned um, the Hajj, mm. he couldn't, because the Caliph hadn't been in Mecca with, with mm. his people, he couldn't make plans with them all. Because that's the best thing about the Hajj is, well, back then especially, from a political perspective, all of the people who make all the big decisions are in one fucking place. So then right. they can make... Then he could have gone again. Listen, we've got these Mongols on our doorstep. We need We're to do something need about them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the other thing is, uh, he waited so long that the Mongols, right? The Mongols were 
everywhere. They were right around his uh, around the Abbasid kingdom at this point. Um, uh, sorry, Abbasid empire. To the north, they'd taken parts of Georgia, and and Jeez. even further north, they were in Poland, but that was far too far. Out. Yeah, um, they just destroyed the Khwarezmian Empire to their east, which is modern day Iran, and they'd subjugated the Seljuk Turks to the northwest. So literally, every it was so obvious that the next thing in their path was this Abbasid Empire. So they were getting isolated and fast, and mm. so you know he really just he really botched this basically, and so with the internal strife and with this lack of uh, cohesion within the Abbasid Empire, suddenly he was only able to command about 80,000 men to defend Baghdad. Yeah. And of those, 60,000 put down their arms. No way. Because they weren't paid. Because they, they weren't paid and then they, I assume they didn't like the Caliph as well because he'd just been a bit useless and... Well, and and or they didn't like the the vizier. This is the thing. Al Al Kamil uh, yeah, sewing all this stuff. So it's a proper like mixture of of both. And it's just it's it, what's so sad is that they could so easily have held out for so much longer. Mm. But as the Mongols encroach on the city, um, the caliph just makes one last, basically one last judgment call, which is to send his vanguard troops, his twenty thousand, all horsemen. Mm. out against this mongol horde which is waiting out in front of them. wow so he decides to rather than staying safe within the walls of his mega city with its 44 feet thick walls he decides to send all his troops out to fight the yeah. mongols yep exactly so he sends them out across the tigris tigris river to the north mm. and actually when they confront the mongols they actually win a victory or oh. so they think Oh. So they do they they um they they do um they engage them in battle and I I will take it up here from uh, one of the sources that I'm using from this. So this is literally directly from the time as well. This is written about 10 years old. Cool. So they met and engaged the Mongols in battle and the Mongol soldiers feigned defeat purposefully and cunningly. The Baghdad vanguard pursued and killed a great number of them and carried back their heads back towards Baghdad. Unfortunately, and I'm paraphrasing as I'm going here, he was overtaken by nightfall, so they spent the night not in the city. They were sort of still the other side of the Tigris, but they felt mm. fairly confident, right? Because they've just beaten these Mongols back. They they've think they've beaten off good. the bulk of the horde. They're completely fine. They're probably getting drunk and celebrating, kicking the heads around they took, yeah. But this is the problem. When they awoke, and I'm back at the quote here, in the morning, Mongol troops attacked them and they fought a bloody battle. The troops of the Caliph could not hold and were defeated, and they ran fleeing back towards Baghdad, but found that the Basir Canal had been flooded overnight, which trapped them between the city and the Mongols. So basically what had happened was the Mongols had um, their frontline scouts had been murdered by the Caliph's men. So right. what did they do? They they snuck a whole contingent of horsemen round the back of the entire vanguard, knowing oh that... You've got to remember, they must have had inside knowledge because they knew there was a canal that was holding back a river, Yeah, the, the Tigris, and they break the canal, which cuts off the line of the retreat for the vanguard. So suddenly the vanguard wow. have gone to sleep, and in the, in the, in the interim, they've lost their, their escape. And they are Jeez. then butchered and those who don't get killed 
they threw themselves into the River Tigris and many of them drowned because the Tigris is a massive river, even yeah. if you're a strong swimmer. So oh my that, God, what a move by the Mongols. I know. So then Hulagu then uh, follows this up by ordering a massive earth wall built around the entire city with its own gates. So then he commands the entire, he basically has a chokehold around this incredible city. Mm. And on top of that, he builds a bridge across the Tigris to the south of the river, so far away from the city that the inhabitants can't see it. And this, mm. essentially what happens is the, uh, a lot of the inhabitants get into boats, the more sort of posh ones who could afford the boats. And yeah. they try to flee the city by going down the river, but this bridge bars their escape oh and they are God. all butchered as well. So there's no Jeez. escape. Wow, the Mongols have really thought this out. I mean, you can see why... I mean, this is so well-planned and so well-thought-out and requires so much knowledge about the the troops of Baghdad, the landscape, the geography, how the defences worked. Yeah. yeah. Need that and inside man, don't they? It's al Alkami, I'm pretty sure, yeah. uh, and others. It's not just him, but he gets mm. the blame, mainly. So as the fighting continues, there's very little fight left in Baghdad because all of their cream of their soldiers, the ones who weren't even staying for their money, they were doing it out of loyalty to their caliph, yeah. uh, have all been butchered. There's none of them left. Not a single soldier returns, as Fuck. far as like, we know. Damn. Um, so all that's left are these unpaid soldiers who basically have to pick up their arms again because otherwise they're just going to die, right? So they saw it like, who cares about earning money? The Mongols are going to kill us. Otherwise, well, we're yeah, fighting trapped. for our lives as opposed to our pensions. Yeah, but that's no, that's not good morale. That's really no. shit morale. So as the fighting's continuing, the Mongols clearly are gaining the upper hand because at this point, the Mongols had worked out how to like break down cities. Because when the Mongols first started out, they were all on horseback and they couldn't break the cities of the Chinese. And the cities of the Chinese were defended very well. But as mm. soon as they'd broken, once they'd worked out how that worked... They then took that machinery and went west, and that's why they were so successful. Wow! They figured out they... the the trick. Of, yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's that's standard medieval warfare. Get yourself behind some big thick walls, yeah. because it's just so effective. Like siege is a really difficult thing. Like a tiny force can hold off millions more, or like a hu a huge imbalance can be on the field. But if you're in a castle, you've got such good protection. Yeah. But I guess if the Mongols can figure it out, I assume so. It's with um, siege weapons, so like trebuchets, catapults, yes, rams, and, and that also sort of stuff. siege yeah. towers as well. Yeah, yeah, and ladders. Interesting. You, ladders. you don't really think of that as the Mongols. I mean, in my head, it's just very mixed up with uh, Game of Thrones, the Dothraki, <laughs> which are obviously very much well, based on the Mongols. But yeah. the Mongols actually became a bit more advanced and started using more siege warfare. This is twelve fifty eight. This is when um, the Crusading armies are using siege warfare you know they've got yeah. those towers the sort of lord of the rings time that it's based on is, is this yeah, time yeah 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 absolutely um and game of thrones for that matter um but no uh so then as the fighting is clearly the mongols are gaining the upper hand hulagu stops and demands that the caliph come out and parlay with him al mustasim right. uh, to come out and parlay with him instead uh, al mustasim sent out his middle son who wasn't even his heir it was the the spare is sent out <laughs> to parley, and this was not accepted, and they imprisoned him. They imprisoned. He's just not good at sending anything. I know. So then the caliph panics and sends out his oldest son and heir, 
and again this oh, is a big fat no that's such a lame thing like imagine the him showing up and going well you can't send him now you just <laughs> insulted us again this is the third insult but, you've thrown at us the, and they want to see the caliph they don't want to see his heir they're trying to see yeah. Al-Mustasim to, to Bal, I feel like Harley. they're almost being reasonable. They just keep <laughs> wanting to talk to him and he keeps dicking them around. I mean, like, you no, know, they have butchered his people, so they're well, not in the right either. But they're probably like, we'll just stop. We just want to talk to you. Finally, the caliph rides out and was right. ordered to re-enter the city alongside a group of Mongol commanders and bring the Khan a proper tribute. So you can just imagine Hulagu's like calls him out of the city in front of his, all his people goes, right, now you're going to give me that fucking tribute. Wow. So, it all is like power play. It's all how it looks. It, like yeah. they don't really care. All of this, they're not caring about, you know, taking over the city, controlling the land. It's a, you know, important military point. It's just them snipe, like being snippy about presence. Exactly. Like they come out and they go, right, I'm going to send my guys in so they can show you how to do this properly. <laughs> Clearly, so, you don't know how to deal with us, Khans. Go in and get a better gift. So let me, uh, now I'll take it up from uh, the sources again. So the Caliph brought out for them money, precious stones, jewellery, brocade, fine clothes, gold and silver vases and other splendid objects. He then returned with the group outside the city wall where he spent the rest of that day. Okay. Right. So now Hulagu has got his tribute and he's pretty much certain he's going to take the city because he's already demanded this tribute. He's got the caliph in his control, mm. his heir and his spare as well. So then the uh, I'm going to take it up again. This is from the source. The Khan then ordered the caliph to be put to death. And he was killed on Wednesday, February 20th, 1258. Oh, my God. But how did he kill him? His blood was Ooh. not shed. Instead, because that was a big thing, he didn't want to spill royal blood. That was they didn't want to make a martyr out of him. But so they he, can still kill him. Yeah, as long as you didn't I don't really quite skin. understand how martyr works. I, like. I, well, no, 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 because I think that was a thing that um, if you spill the blood, then it's worse. I don't know why, but it was. <laughs> so instead, he was put in a sack and trampled to death by horses. I mean, that would definitely spill blood. Well, like. <laughs> You, yeah, like there's no sack. way that would in the sack. We didn't spill his blood at all. Isn't that sack pretty bloody? No, it's that's water. He uh, <laughs> it's just water. Shut up. <laughs> he, he was then buried, and traces of his tomb were effaced, which means erased. So they didn't want to even wow. respect him in death. And immediately after this, what did they do? Hulagu Khan ordered the caliph's sons to be slaughtered as well. Spilling so, their blood or trampling and not spilling their blood. They don't. The, the sources don't say, but basically, he's just cut the head off the snake, if you like. Wow! So and that then, presumably wouldn't have happened if the caliph had just sent a good gift that first maybe. time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I seriously think it might have been all right. Um, but anyway, Hulagu then enters the city, which is then proceeds to be pillaged and and raped by his men for seven days. And he requests the audience with the caliph's uncles and brothers, because there's still lots of the Abbas family of the Abbasid yeah. Empire in the city because they haven't been able to escape. So, But what he did, which was so clever, was he did this individually and requested they meet him at the Al-Halal Cemetery, which is just in the, in the main royal compound. Mm. And uh, again, the source says, they came with their children and slave girls where they were all put to death. So instead oh of my causing panic by getting them all in one place at once, he individually calls out 
these uncles who think, oh, maybe he'll put me in as a puppet. And then yeah, yeah, they're thinking, oh, maybe he wants to strike a deal. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's cold. I know, and it it's gets clever, worse. but it's oh yeah. So the Al Halal Cemetery is where all of the bodies of the old caliphs, going right back to Al Mansur, is are buried. Right. Wow. He orders this royal cemetery to uh, be destroyed. So the bodies are dug oh, up. Oh man. They're dug up and set on fire, and the bones and skulls are unearthed. So Jeez. he he understands that the Abbasid Empire has been around a long time. So he needs to to cut it right back to the quick, and that's exactly wow. what he does. God, so the Mongols are metal. That's messed. That's so intense. Like but, not to just yeah. destroy the family uh, and all the sons and everyone living today, but like destroy the legacy or the yeah. the history of the Abbasid Caliph. Wow. What what then follows that Tusi sees as he's walking into the city is something which is just hellish. I mean, I'm going to read you the quote because I have to, because I need you to hear it. But at the okay. time, there were 800,000 people living in Baghdad around that figure, maybe even a million. That's yeah. kind of the idea. So a great part of the city, including the Caliph's mosque and its surroundings, were burnt and the city was laid in ruins. The dead lay as mounds in the streets and the markets. Rain oh. fell on them. Horses trampled down upon them. Their faces were disfigured and they became an example to anyone who saw them. This is a direct quote. Jeez. Those that were left after this came out from hiding. Their color had changed. Their minds shocked by the sight of the horror that no words can describe. They were like the dead emerging from the graves the day of the resurrection, fearful, hungry, and cold. It is said that there were more than 800,000 dead in Baghdad, not including the children thrown in the mud, those who perished in the canals, wells, and basements, and those who died of hunger and fear. Those that survived the killing were struck by an epidemic from breathing the odor of corpses and drinking contaminated water. The inhabitants frequently smelled onions because of the strong smell. It's a bit of a weird ending, but like <laughs> the point was that this this was a a place which hadn't seen this sort of butchery in in anyone's lifetimes and oh it my just god so they was, killed there was 800,000 bodies but that well that is the kind of their population yeah, yeah they basically just crushed it now that's just from one source but it's, there's only three sources of on this so but yeah, still yeah. they clearly killed, oh killed my, a lot wow that is oh that's one of the roughest days i think we've talked about on this uh podcast that is brutal and all because yeah. he didn't send him a good gift and I mean, maybe uh, not but but there was an exception to this two types of people were spared the christians oh yeah and some merchants so it turns out a group of merchants from baghdad had traveled to a place called hurasan which is where hulagu was Gukan, and made contracts with the mongol emirs there and obtained letters of safe conduct so they saw the writing on the walls. They realized that when this wow. is going to happen. So they were they got ahead of the game. And so they were left alone. But the more interestingly is the Christians, I think. So why spare Christians? I mean, the, yeah. the, it seems like a weird thing. But it turns out that Hulagu's mother was a Christian, as was his principal wife and his main general, Kit Buka. So oh, wow. where did they pick up Christianity? Well, it was from the same fucking monks that founded 
Baghdad. The Nestorians. No way. The Nestorians. Yes. Oh, wow. God, so, these weird monks are just, like, embedded in the entire story of Baghdad. Yeah, and I, I was so fascinated by this. So the Christian... Um, it's not necessarily we um the current christianity is uh it descends from nicene christianity yeah but this is nestorian christianity which is slightly different it descends from the tales of thomas the apostle aka doubting thomas if you know your bible right um and they believed in wandering monks and had no churches or monasteries and there's three reasons why that is really good for mongols to believe in number one jesus sounds like the word yesu which in mongolian means the number nine which apparently is an okay. important thing um it also links jesus with genghis khan's father's name yesuge so yesu as it would have been yesu yesuge is their their founding father so it kind of father. fits within their idea of important people yeah and finally the big one is that mongols traditionally believed in great shamans who could heal the sick and survive death and they mm. basically saw Jesus as this big top dog shaman of the world because he'd survived death and he wow. healed the sick. So they so, weren't quite converting to Christianity, but they had a reverence for Christianity as exactly. a real religion. They didn't see it as just a strange, odd religion that they could they crash. They were actually fairly tolerant, actually. There were there were Buddhists living under Mongol rule. There were um, the other, obviously poly polytheists, and I'm pretty sure the Islamic um, um, the Islamic world doesn't d get destroyed by the Mongols. In, Do the Mongols have their own faith? Do they have uh, a more of a central? It's just sham uh, shamanic. So okay, so they believe in the wow. all uh, the sky god. I think um, they they'd always be buried on. They'd be left out for the birds to feast yeah. on them and things like that. So it's that's a funny a, that, funny ritual. But that's um, so amazing, and they, it's amazing they had such restraint, so yeah. that that either if you had a cross above your uh, house or I guess a letter to say you know you were about to get pillaged yeah. and killed and raped and you hold up a letter and go no no no, no. i've got a, i've got a get out of free chart got a yeah get out of jail free card here you can't rape me which is kind of a <laughs> weird thing to say to Mo like i'm surprised the mongol soldiers abided by that but i guess I, if they're I, being commanded a good team to talk before they got in a good team talk all right, all right so here like if they get out a map and there's just a bunch of like red x's of places they can't go so like, all right you don't go there no i'm looking at you you don't go there <laughs> leave him alone leave him alone that yeah. one, they're the ones who worship that great shaman that we really like. Yeah, don't don't piss that guy. And that one exactly. paid us off, so we're leaving him. But his neighbour, you can burn down his house. Yeah, we don't like him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, um, how does Tusi fit into all this? Because Tusi yeah. is the saviour of of the Baghdad uh, library's wisdom. Well, Tusi has spent his whole life coming west right. because he starts life, funnily enough, in the town of Tus, which is where he gets Al Tusi from, because yeah, of yeah, Tus, yeah. a bit like Leonardo da Vinci is of the place of Vinci. Yeah, yeah. same same with um my girl, my guy yeah. um Al Quizmi, uh, he, where he was from is like Quazam, so it's kind of a similar thing. Yeah. So he he was born in this town of Tus in twelve oh one, which made him fifty seven by the time of the fall of Baghdad, and he was considered one of the great wisdoms of his time in the Islamic world, just like the greats that uh, we heard about last week. He yeah. uh, wrote books on all sorts of things, including algebra, mineralogy, and philosophy. But he's most of all remembered for being an incredible astronomer and astrologer. Because they were kind of one and the same um, yeah. at the time. He basically incorporated like mathematical theory into astronomy, which meant that um, his tables um, 
meant that the stars were mapped much more accurately. And it wow. laid the foundations for future stargazers like Copernicus and Kepler to, they used Tusi's tables to start their own research. Actually, so, now you're saying Tusi's tables. I'm sure I've heard that before. There you go. And that's like, that, that is a, that's a huge aspect of astronomy and lots of science that we do nowadays. So it's again, leading to what we were talking about last week about how these amazing Islamic philosophers and scientists are kind of forgotten to history, even though they are essential to where we are today. Yeah. Um, so Tusi, uh, when he was very young, went to study in a place called Nishapur, which is um, a place of great, that it's a good place for learning. And yeah. this is all whilst the Mongols are systematically dismantling the Khwarezmian Empire, which he was born into. Um, but it still, it wasn't like total war, so there were pockets of peace, and Nishapur was one of these places. Mm. But at some point um, in his life, we're not quite sure when, uh, he was invited to an audience by a very special someone whose capital was up in the Elberts Mountains at a little place called Alamut. And this, okay. for those of you who might not know it yet so far, was the Grand Master of the Assassins. Yes, <sighs> those assassins. Oh my ones. God, we've come full circle. We have. No way. Yeah. So he was very impressed by this man, uh, Tusi. And Tusi uh, is flattered... Uh, as well and Tusi accepts the invitation and joins the fucking order of the assassins no way yeah the, oh my god he's an he's an assassin yes so that three-sided um, symbol on his right forearm that i mentioned was i'm not sure if he actually had that but it's the assassin's creed symbol <laughs> i was gonna say he had an oh right, right right i was thinking <laughs> you're just saying a triangle but oh my god yeah. he's no way so yeah. wait does that mean he's trained as a Islamic Maybe. assassin, it yeah. depends. Uh, we don't, this is um, a lot earlier. Well, not that much earlier, but um, they haven't been pushed as far towards Jerusalem and Syria yet because the yeah. Mongols. But the Mongols are hot on their on their heels. But before they get there, Tusi um, joins the order and becomes a highly regarded member of the intellectual arm of the assassins. So he oh. is. Um, he wrote. He was actually very productive in his time there. He wrote books on logic philosophy, math, and astronomy, all while staying at Alamut um, up in yeah, the mountains. Yeah, because of course, because they're kind of a community. Like, it's not like it's de it's described in the games or how we like to think about it as this, like, elite uh, group of assassins. It was a community whose yeah. military arm used subterfuge and guerrilla tactics as opposed to stand-up warfare. So he kind of just joined a community and was a scholar within that community. But he may well have been trained as well. We don't know. It's quite interesting. I would yeah. like to think he was. I mean, the yeah. fact that he was sent into a war zone, clearly he needed to show off, you know, he needed to show the Mongols that he could he could work his he could work his magic. He could fight them off. You know, he well, was he, he was he a clearly, threat to them. He clearly was sturdy. He clearly had courage yeah. because to do everything he does, I mean, my God, he, he, he must have had balls um, mm. because um, at some point it, it appears clear that he becomes sort of a prisoner. Because of the nature mm. of the assassins being quite a secret order, I don't think you can kind of leave. It's like leaving the Masons. You just don't do it. Or, um, the, or Church of Scientology. Well, well quite, yeah. yeah so yeah. Um, at some point, uh, the relationship between the master of the assassins and Tusi might have soured because in 1256, the castle is attacked by no, none other than Hulagu, the guy who eventually goes to Baghdad. And um, eventually he takes the castle of Alamut, and mm. 
Some sources claim that Al-Tusi betrayed the defenses of Alamut to the invading Mongols. Wow. So he might have been part of the destruction of this particular part of the wow. Assassin's Creed. And was uh, So he, he shifted sides. Well, because he was Mongols. stuck. He couldn't get out. So mm. maybe. Um, this is just uh, speculation, but Hulagu saw Tusi as a valuable asset and gave him a position as his chief scientific advisor soon after the capture of Alamut. So it's a very quick rise for someone who's just joined. So yeah. it could be that there's a, a relationship there prior to this. That's, oh, oh definitely. I mean, yeah. Hulagu obviously recognised his value as both a scholar and clearly a master assassin of the trade. So I think <laughs> I think that's definitely how it worked. And what a yeah. cool, like, shifting alliance guy. Like, he's a proper pragmatist. Got yeah. what he needed from the assassins, moves to the Mongols, and then goes with them to Baghdad. Yeah, uh, it's funny. Some some people um, have claimed over the over the centuries that Tusi was um, instrumental in sort of directing Hulagu to take Baghdad. But that doesn't mm. really stand up to the evidence. There's no evidence of that. And to be honest with you, there is one account um, that, uh, that can be found, which is reported by a man called Kwan Sari. And he says that um, Tusi himself was not secure under Hulagu. And one day he was afraid of being executed and wrote mm. a letter to a friend. So I don't know how much freedom he had there any more than he had under the assassins. But it may have everyone... been... Yeah, yeah, it may have been like while he was uh, maybe like a favorite of the Khan, he had power and security and, you know, he was he was well respected, but he wasn't one of them. So his, you know, his standing could turn on a dime and yeah. there may have been other people who didn't like him, this weird foreigner who has a weird, you know, blade at his wrist that keeps popping in and out and <laughs> keeps talking about eagles and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it isn't. It it doesn't seem like the obvious matchup, does it? No, oh, but it's a, but I think that's the most interesting stuff when there's uh, strange alliances uh, between people you wouldn't imagine would work together. Yeah, exactly. So now to take us back to Baghdad, he has managed to save. Uh, well, he's managed to stop the bleeding, if you like, at mm. the House of Wisdom. So why has he done that? Well, apart from the obvious of actually saving the uh the play uh, all of that all of that collected knowledge as you were saying earlier um mm. one of the big reasons is that um the, the uh, one of the big reasons why hulagu accepts this as a plan is that he is setting up his own capital at a place called and i'm going to butcher this maraga that's probably really uh, maybe maraga it's quite hard to to work out sure but sounds um, good and right there, um, he is also going to set up a sort of city of excellence. So a very similar thing to the House of Wisdom. And so he mm. obviously needs to have things to be putting putting into it. So, well, so he wants to jumpstart his epic library. Like he needs, yeah. he wants to go like, I don't really want to bother tracking down books across the world and translating them. I'll just steal their library and call it my but own. What's interesting about Marigat is it has, when he built it, he built it with a high wall and had four gates, very similar to wow, the center of Baghdad. very similar to Baghdad. Yeah. yeah. So Tusi manages to save 400,000 manuscripts and books Jeez. from destruction of the fall what of Baghdad. Yeah. yeah. So that must have taken a lot of mules. But basically, he then takes all of this and takes it north 
to this new place, Maraga, which becomes a center of learning for the next generation, the next stage in, in, in the history of the world. And it's wow. still there to this day. And it, there's still a, an observatory there where you can see the stars. And he was very interested in, in the study of the stars. So he um, manages to savor a whole, so much knowledge. It's like the opposite story of the Alexandrian Library. This is a yeah. good story. <laughs> Not good for Baghdad, but um, its no. knowledge is saved, which I think is oh, very that is, important. That is amazing. I mean, you know, we don't... Obviously, the lives that were lost that day, uh, you know, the, 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 the knowledge that was saved pales in comparison to the destruction. Um, and, you know, you can't really... If, if, if the people could have been saved and actually burnt all the manuscripts, I'd still think it would probably be worth it because that is just utter des like desecration and destruction and, and death and horrors. But it's yeah. still nice to see that they are that there's a respect for the the learnings and actually those that education could go on to help people, and hopefully would. So. It would it, yeah because I think the thing that you lose a lot of when there's these massive destructions and falls of empires is that collective knowledge which is used. Mm. You see it with the fall of Rome, yeah, and yeah. the so-called Dark Ages, which comes up an terrible amount when we talk on this podcast. According <laughs> yes, to the Dark Ages, despite your despite your hate for the term, yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, what's interesting is history's repeated itself again, because whilst I was looking through uh, my research for this, I found that after the 2003 invasion of the US into Iraq and Baghdad, there yeah. was a library called the Kadiria, Kadiria Library, um, which managed to escape the widespread destruction in Baghdad. And um, 10 libraries were destroyed in Baghdad alone that day or those days uh. with lots of valuable books which had been smashed and destroyed. Mm. But one man, Dr. Saad Eskander, managed to lock down the library and he only had two, uh, I think it's, no, four Kalashnikovs and they managed to hold off all the rioters and all of the all of the people and, and apparently the US forces turned up, let them keep the two Kalashnikovs and then kept mm. and just kept going because they were looking for other things. And yeah. one of the books which survived the river Tigris, which fished out of the river back in wow, Mongol times, okay. was housed in this library and it's still there to this day. Thanks to Oh my god. Thanks to that. Yeah. Wow. So I, I just had to include that as well. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. I mean, yeah. although it's it's it really puts a dark twist because like you were talking about the all the, the monuments men where mm. during World War Two the Nazis were destroying or stealing all this art, so we sent, you know, soldiers in to protect that. And yeah. then, you know, eighty years later, we're bombing a city without any regard for the libraries we're destroying there and yeah. it's only it's their citizens that protect it you know we did nothing we didn't have our own to see to go in or monuments men to protect this place that we no. were destroying we were just doing it uh w without any regard to the knowledge that was lost because presumably partly i would imagine because of the arrogance we have in this western world to think we're the inheritors of the world's knowledge the rest of the world gets it from us there's nothing yeah. in these places. And yet that book that was fished out of the river during the Mongol invasion could have been written, who knows how long ago, could have been written during the time I was looking at when the in the great like translation it could have been. time. Could have been. It follows and yet, through. And we almost broke uh, we almost blew it up. I know, I know. British. God, and so <laughs> that is our story. A, uh, a a potential assassin saves a whole library of knowledge to pass on to future generations who also happen to write a book on algebra.
<laughs> well, that is an extraordinary tale. I mean, that is amazing. I mean, it had everything. It had it had books, it had science, it had Mongol invasions, and it had assassins. Yeah. So it's almost like full circle. Maybe we should have I done know. this at the end. <laughs> but we didn't. We didn't think that far ahead. <laughs> we didn't think that far ahead. And I didn't no, even no. realise this until I started the research. So I yeah, was very yeah, happy yeah. So, um, it all came out. Well, thank you very much. I think that, that was an amazing story. And uh, all you listeners, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, if you've been missing Assassination Tales, I hope that's uh, wet your appetite. Although that's <laughs> if we're going to bring more, which probably doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I hope that's sated you for now because that's, uh, that's the closest I think we're going to get to an assassination. And it wasn't even an assassination, but it was an assassin. Yeah. Who put aside his blade to protect the knowledge for the good of all mankind, which is really nice and cool. And actually fits in a lot with the ethos of the games for Assassin's Creed because they're meant to be really good guys and I bet they would all protect <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. knowledge and stuff as opposed to being the bloodthirsty maniacs we know them to be from our very first episode of Cloak and Dagger. Yeah, exactly. So, so thanks yeah. so much for listening, guys. And uh, Patrick, what are we going to next week? We've got a new city. So next week, we are going from the Middle East to the Far East. We're kind of returning to a country that we've covered before, but focusing on a specific city, because we are looking at Tokyo, Japan, which yes. is an amazing city, or or as it was known uh, more in the past, Edo. So we're going to be looking at a very interesting city in a very interesting part of the world. I mean, I really enjoyed my uh, research into uh, Japan. I know you did a bit of... A, bit of research as well into the Sohei monks. I did it obviously on the ninjas because we were still in our assassins series, have, our assassins editions of the yeah. Broken Dagger podcast. <laughs> but we have our two news stories which we can't wait to tell you about. But you'll have yes. to wait until next time for that. Absolutely. So yeah, so I hope you've enjoyed learning about Baghdad as much as we have. Despite the the difficulties we had researching it, I think it's turned out really well. Um, learning about some amazing points in their history and really learning how rich their history is and how it extends far beyond all the stuff going on nowadays. And actually, that's something that's almost like a lesson. If we had a lesson a week to learn, which we're not going to do because that's a weird <laughs> thing to do, but if there was a lesson to learn, it's to remember that, you know, a city and a, and a culture's history is far longer than we know it of. And there's some amazing stories in that. And I would highly recommend learning about all this stuff um, as much as you can. I mean, the whole Islamic history is phenomenal and really fascinating and is. is certainly something that's kept out of all of our history books. Uh, and we do hope that changes. So I hope we can push us in the right direction and teach you guys about this culture, which, I mean, before now I knew very little about and I still know very little about it, but I feel like I know a bit more now. We've opened the, opened the banks on it. It's good. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>